Welcome to Dragon Talk. I'm Greg Tito. What's up, Greg Tito? What's up, Shelly Moo? How you doing? Pretty good. I'm welcome excited. back. Oh, thank you. Are you welcome back to you, too? Thanks. I'm excited to talk about some Dungeons & Dragons stuff today. I'm excited to talk about it as well. We got, uh, what's going on? We got Storm King's Thunders coming out. Yes, yeah, soon. Coming out at the end of August in game stores, and uh, I think it was September 5th in the wide release. The wide world. Everywhere on the Amazons and uh, everywhere you buy Dungeons yep. & Dragons books. So check it out there. Uh, you'll be able to get a uh, preview Less of that. Uh, you can. There's a couple of shows you can get previews of the Storm King's Thunder story. Uh, Actors Incorporated, the series. Right. Um, also, Force Grey Giant Hunters, which is still going on right now at Nerdist. Go check that out there. You'll see some very funny comedians, uh, such as Chris Hardwick and Brian Pissane, uh laughing it up. And don't miss the awesome product placement. Uh, yes. Approximately eight seconds in. Yeah, Betrayal at House on the Hill, <laughs> on the shelf, as, yes. uh, as Utkarsh runs by to join uh, the D&D uh, game in the back of Meltdown it's very Comics. very cool. It's very cool. Yeah. Uh, so we have a, a Lori Cheneau segment coming up, but I also want to let you know that our interview today is very exciting. Very cool. We are talking to uh, Stefan, the founder of Dwarven Forge and right. lead sculptor. And An show, artist extraordinaire. Artist extraordinaire, exactly. And uh, Shelley, you're looking at me. What is Jordan Forge? It's, Why don't you tell us? Well, I... I uh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what is it's it? It's pretty much the coolest dungeon terrain in the world. How's that? For, I think that's like straight off the wiki page. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. awesome. I mean, I, I, you describe it. Well, it's yeah, like sure. dungeon terrain. It's in it's 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 modular terrain that you can use on in your D and D game. It's in the right scale for yeah. miniatures, um, and uh, they have a couple of different sets going on. But the first one I remember seeing was definitely the dungeon tiles, and it looks it looks like a real did you see it at carved dungeon. Yes, I did. Me too. That was my first. It yeah. literally stopped me dead in my tracks. Yeah, what because you're just that? like, oh my god, that's amazing. Yes. Um, and uh, so yeah, um, we also are talking to uh, the director of the. Uh, Documentary, the Dwarvenaut, which goes into uh, Stefan's like entire life story about how he's creating this stuff, yes. uh, and uh, uh, it's it's really it's a really fascinating documentary. So it, I can't wait it to absolutely is. I can't wait to hear from them. Uh, it was how they got together. I didn't even know like how did these two dudes get uh, together. We'll find out. Um, we'll totally find out. Yes, it's gonna be exciting. Yes. Uh, all right. So before that, though, uh, we're gonna do a lower you should know segment uh, with none other uh, than uh, two very very handsome gentlemen. You'll find out. Okay. When I introduce them. Oh, so exciting. Too bad this is a podcast and we can't see them. I know, right? Yeah. It's Chris Perkins and Matt Cernan. But, oh, okay, you fine. gave it away. All right. We're going to do that right now. Okay. All right. Welcome to Lore You Should Know. Uh, this is the segment in which we delve into uh, some topics of lore in Dungeons and Dragons that we don't necessarily get to see too often and bring them to the forefront and let uh, people know about what's going on uh, behind the scenes and then, you know, the latest adventure. And, uh, you know, if there's not going to be a latest adventure, we'll just talk about uh, some awesome stuff about Dungeons and Dragons. So I am joined by... I rolled a three. Oh. Chris Perkins rolled a three. <laughs> that means you succeed. That's a magic spin down day. It doesn't count. That's what they say, right? Yeah, it's not the it's not the right distribution of numbers, says Matt Cernet. Yeah. Yes. The the non bearded, no longer wizardy. Yes, the unbeardening happened. Yeah. 
You, yeah, whereas before you looked like Elminster, I would say now you got like more of a hitch thing going on. Yeah, I'll go with either. Yeah, you know, the lovable scoundrel. Yeah. Both of them, really, honestly. Well, I guess that's true. Yeah. Uh, so awesome. Uh, thanks for joining me, guys. We're going to talk today uh, about hill giants and stone giants, the last two uh, types in our kind of investigation of all the giants of the Ordning. Uh, so yeah, let's start with stone, seeing as they are the more powerful of the two. Uh, so yeah, what can you tell us about uh, stone giants? Stone giants trace their origins back to the original first edition monster manual. They were one of the six original giant types. Uh, distinctive um, in part because they have their neutral alignment. Uh, that sort of made them a little bit oddball. And I know as a young DM, I was sort of struggling with that. How do I use these guys in a game? Because they don't seem to be the traditional evil stomp you types. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the other interesting thing about stone giants is that they're the best stone throwers of the lot. Uh, <laughs> Which that, makes sense. That's kind of their stock and trade, yeah. Uh, and they also live underground. That's sort of their happy place. And uh, they sort of get a little bit weirded out about the surface, don't they, Matt? Yeah, well, so we, we kind of generated some of that um, more recently uh, with, um, I guess, Monster, well, the Volo's Guide to Monsters. And um, that kind of came about with the idea that essentially the, the world above is a dream space for them. And the world below is their sort of firm reality where everything is shapeable and can be controlled. And so uh, we have, there's this concept that essentially the farther out you go, the lower in the ordning the stone giants are because they're closer and closer to the surface. So mm. um, the stone giants that the adventuring party typically meets, like out in you know, the mountains or whatever, are the least um, capable stone carvers, the most sort of uh, just brutal and simplistic versions of, of their society. And are they outcasts? From um, they're on the fringes. They're not necessarily outcasts. Um, so I, we, we do have some examples of outcasts or an idea of what an, an outcast would be, again, in monster mythology, or not monster mythology, uh, Volos Guided Monsters. Uh, but the, the main idea there is just that that, that space is sort of the a weird vision quest space that they would go into. And so stone giants will go out there on purpose sometimes to sort of have those dreams, uh, but then go back down below. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, the thing that really, as Matt pointed out, the thing that elevates stone giants above each other is their ability at stone artistry. Um, the better the stone carver you are, the more respected you are within stone giant society. Um, and as Matt says, that can lead some of the less talented ones to go take a chance and go abroad to see if they can find another place um, where they'll be happy. Uh, the other thing about stone giants is that they've sort of got a weird alien perspective of the people who live on the surface. Right. Um, they don't know what to make of them, and frankly, they're not even sure that they're real. So if a stone giant is hucking rocks at you, it could be partly just to verify in their own mind whether or not you're even a tangible thing, and they sort of would just look at you as kind of with an alien detachment, uh, a look like, a, that they couldn't really relate to you on any common level at all. So it's like someone on a uh, on an acid trip or something like that, it could just be. like touching a, yeah. a, a, a you know a tree or something yes. like that just to make verify. Part, that part of it is actually... if a stone giant reaches out and grabs you. Part part of it is just it trying to understand whether you're actually of substance. Or something not. that's actually experiencing or exactly. not. Exactly. So what do you, uh, so if they go up into the surface to kind of experience this as like a dreamlike state, do they actually enter an hallucinogenic state when they're up there, or is that just what they? 
think of it as. They, that's just what they think of it as. Uh, there isn't actually any physical transformation mm -hmm. or chemical reaction that happens when they go up to the surface other than just the sheer overpowering stimuli that they're not accustomed to. Uh, oh, I see, sun. that's what it is, because they're and used to sensory deprivation underground. Right, right. they're in the, the dark underground, they're surrounded by stone, which is sort of their comfortable naval, native habitat, and now they're in this sort of grand open space with sky and stars, and that just sort of freaks them out. I see. Yeah, yeah. And, we, and we got into a little bit of this with Out of the Abyss and the, the stone giants that mm -hmm. lived in uh, Gracklestug, right. exactly. Yeah. Cool. What were you going to say, Matt? Well, just that they're, they're accustomed, I think, to, besides the sounds of sort of chipping stone, that sort of rhythmic nature of, of noise and echoing and so on in, in their environment, they're accustomed to silence, essentially. So if, they, if they're not working stone, they're, they're being quiet. And so they're, they're, I think they are actually one of the more stealthy giants as well, aren't they? Because when they're not moving, they're in the almost as indistinguishable from stone. Is that right? Correct. And... Uh, uh, another point uh, worth making of them is they live the longest of all the of all the major giants, okay. um, uh, considerably longer than most. And but when they do pass on, they calcify. They essentially turn to stone. Wow. Yeah. And then so uh, I remember seeing some of the the concept art uh, for this. Their 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 burial places. Mm -hmm. What does that look like? Um, they could be underground um, chambers, caverns, grottos, or whatever, but you might see basically this calcified lump that upon closer inspection, as you shine your light on it, seems to have vaguely discernible, albeit oversized humanoid figure to it, um, or a humanoid cast to it, and that would suggest that maybe it once was a stone giant. Others sort of become so merged with the walls and ceiling and floors around them that they just look like weird, odd natural formations. Crazy. So yeah. can you confirm or deny that the man on the mountain in Vermont is a stone giant? <laughs> Undoubtedly a stone giant. <laughs> cool. Uh, is there anything else about them you wanted to mention uh, as far as making the tendrils of, of, of story pop into Dungeon Master's minds? Uh, their main deities, their sort of primary deity is Scorius Stonebones, and uh, in giant mythology, he's sort of the wise mystic type. Uh, Thrym and uh, Surtur are often fighting one another or com you know, competing with one another and so on. And, and um, you know, Memnor is this sort of deceptive trickster figure and so... Gorlantor is all about the eating. Right, and, and, and so whereas you know, you have Scoria Stonebone and he's, he's just calm and centered and quiet and wise. And so there's, there's lots of little tidbits of story around uh, Scoria Stonebones that are, that are fun to kind of think about as far as how we would relate to the other giants. And uh, so we have some of that, in, again, in Volus Guided Monsters if it didn't hit the cutting room floor. So Interesting. All right, cool. All right, let's move on to uh, hill giants then, uh, which are possibly in folklore, uh, you know, normal human folklore is, mm -hmm. would be what most people think of when they think of a giant. Right, and of all the giants, the one I can most relate to. <laughs> because they like to eat? Food! Food! <laughs> that's all they care about. Um, seriously, that's, that's literally all they care about is eating, gorging, and enjoying life, you know? They're not too discriminating about what they eat. Um, they, and they're likely the first giants that a party of adventurers will ever encounter. Their gluttony um, makes them natural villains. Uh, they'll eat 
engorge themselves on just about anything. If mm-hmm. one happens to come by and smell food coming from village, it isn't going to be shy about getting <laughs> about so, taking what it wants. Does that mean that the hill giant who consumes the most is the most is the fattest is is the most powerful? Well, that's something that uh, that we talked about in developing these guys a little bit more for Volo's Guide and for Storm King's Thunder, and that is that. Um, the way the hill giants look at themselves within the ordning is the biggest rule. Very simple. It's as simple as that. Hill giants are not big thinkers. They're very low intelligence, only slightly smarter than ogres. And so really their life goal is just to be big, super big, and they respect size. If that giant is bigger than me, he is my boss. Yeah, and, and it, I mean, it, it is quite literally... Um size, not necessarily height or strength, right? So the, the hill giant who just eats and eats and eats and eats and eats and gets enormously fat is the hill giant who is in charge. <laughs> Even if that hill giant has to have somebody else, you know, push them around in a cart or carry them about <laughs> on a, a plankman or something yeah. like that. You know? So uh, they're, they're just funny and fun uh, characters. And I mean, when you think about it, at, to, at a certain extent, uh, horrifying, right? The, this sort of uh, unhindered uh, hunger and, you know, what they might do if, you know, there's there's some snackable halflings over there, you know, like that kind of thing. But they're... Crunch, crunch, crunch. Right. Um, But the, you know, I just love the idea of of hill giants, like in the the old uh, Disney cartoon, like picking up a wagon full of pumpkins and popping them in their mouths and stuff like that. So it's just fun. Yeah. Yeah. And so prowess in battle doesn't matter to them, uh, you know, as far as authority goes. No. Um, and they don't have anything, any concept of honor or any sort of higher goals. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about their deity? Yeah, Grolantor. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he's, he's the baby of the family. Yeah, he's the baby of the family of, of the sort of the giant uh, gods. And, uh, and yeah, he's he, like he is kind of the baby. He's just this, this that, that whiny, bratty uh, baby. It's the, it's the, the bird in the nest that just cries so much it gets all the food, right? It's 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 just a uh, this character of uh, a character, and um, I guess in in sort of the few sort of stories that are there in lore and stuff like monster mythology and so on, it really plays up that aspect of Grolantor just being this um, brutish and and hungry and dumb and and ultimately evil. Like he's also. Um, someone who is spiteful and um, mean-spirited and cruel um, while he's eating everything inside. Okay. So, yeah. And the hill giants follow along that, that kind of personality generally. Yeah. yeah. They, they definitely reflect him. Definitely. And, uh, you know, we have some interesting things in, in Volo's Guided Monsters as far as um, sort of an evolution of that idea with, I guess, I don't remember the final name we ended up with on those monsters. Uh, of, you mean of the hill giant variant monster? Yeah, yeah. The mouth of Grolantor. Oh, mouth of Grolantor. Okay, yeah. there you go. So it's a it's a hill giant that has basically been starved to the point of being utterly famished oh. and, and locked away, locked up, so that should it ever get out, it would just be this absolutely horrible, rampaging, eating monster. Ugh. And yeah. S- and so it's it's sort of becomes the hunger of Grolantor and kind of shows um, if, it, if it ever escapes what Grolantor is hungry for. So it's sort of this weird quasi-religious figure. At first it's an outcast because it's the weakest and the least able to get food, you know. So they, they sort of put it in a cage or they, they lock it up or whatever and then that giant um, becomes hungrier and hungrier and hungrier. And feral. And feral. 
Uh, and, and so then, you know, at some point, you know, if it ever gets loose, that kind of shows them where um, Grolander's hunger is. You know, they might just go after another hill giant. Who knows, right? It's right. Kind of are they, so whoever would administer this, are there clerics of Gorlanto that would kind of be like, you know, probably a simple ceremony or if any ceremony at all, but at least the ones would be like, this is what our deity wants. Yeah, the previous editions have basically um, applied the you know the class um, types to basically every monster a lot of times, and particularly clerics got applied very liberally across pretty much everything. You know? Right. And so there would be even cl- clerics of things like mind flayers, where it's sort of like and we made up mind flayer deities in second edition Manzikorian and Ilsensine and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, you know at their root. Mind Flayers never really had a religion. They that that wasn't part of their makeup. And same thing really with with hill giants. Like they they have had clerics going way back, um, but it's also been something that doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense. Uh, sometimes it, like uh, even in third and fourth edition adventures, they were given druids because there's this idea that they hang out with bears uh, a lot. Yeah. And so we decided to give them you know hill giant druids and, and then then you have weird things where the hill giant is turning into a giant bear and uh you know it's like it's a giant giant bear and uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's like doubly giant yeah, it makes sense all right so yeah but there would be at least some at least crude form not necessarily clerics getting divine power from gorlanto but someone who speaks yeah. as a as a priest uh, to be like oh this is what he and wants us to do typically that would be whoever's in charge right Got because it. you wouldn't yeah. want to in in the ordning you know it's a strict top to bottom order and so you don't get to have sort of another religious person put themselves above whoever is sort of in the top spot i see that makes a lot more sense now yeah you're right that they're they're in the giant caste system there's enough variations uh, uh, among the types that you don't necessarily need commoners and uh, and uh, you know priests in in the variations in there that makes total sense to me yeah Excellent. Cool. Any other, uh, uh, obviously, Volo's Guide to Monsters is going to be uh, give us a lot of insight into these types. Yes. Yes, it will. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm trying to think of anything else cool about Hill Giants. Oh, there was something we came up with um, based on a concept illo that one of our concept artists had created uh, that showed a Hill Giant with a foot sticking out of his mouth, or a couple feet sticking out of his mouth, and we came up with this silly game that Hill Giants play called Stuff Stuff. And because it's a hill giant game, it is stupid and inane. <laughs> it's basically the game is how many halflings can you fit in your mouth? The end. <laughs> and the it, winner is the, the winner guy. is the one who can fit the most halflings in his mouth without swallowing them. That's the important. So yeah, you have to be able to spit them back out afterwards. So you can pre- count them exactly. Right, but the problem is, you know, you probably only get up to about ten before hill giants <laughs> stop and stuff yes. stuff just. Yes. <laughs> right. Plus, every time you spit them out, some run away, and you have to find more, and it's yeah. It's just a big mess. Yeah. So stuff, stuff. It's it's <laughs> it's the next Pokemon Go. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Uh, we'll be. Uh, it's gonna kind, be big. It's gonna be huge. 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 <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you guys. Uh, that was really cool. I love I love hearing from uh, Chris and Matt. Yep, they're giving such uh, great insight. They're givers. They're good givers. They're good. They're givers. lore givers. Yep. Um, and uh, we're getting great feedback from folks uh, about the Lori Chanel segment, Very good. Uh, which I'm excited about. So please, uh, it, you know, go ahead and reach me out on me on Twitter and uh, give me any more topics of stuff that you might want to know. We're going to be a little bit more Storm King's Thunder focused for the next few of one of them. But uh, after that, we can definitely delve into some new topics. So I'm looking for some more suggestions for that. So please do that. Uh, you can reach me at Twitter at 
Greg Tito. That's my Twitter. It's pretty it's easy. Yeah. What's yours? At Shelly Moo. You can tell her too. Yeah. Shelly Moo. I'll pass on. It rhymes. Uh, all right. So now on to our wonderful guest, uh, Stefan and Josh, the director of the documentary about uh, Stefan. They're calling, I think, from Brooklyn, which I think is pretty cool. Oh, those are your people. Those are my peeps. Hello. Hello. This is Greg Tito. Hi, Greg Tito. This is Josh Bishop. Hi, Josh Bishop. And Stefan Pacorni is sitting right next to me. Hi, Stefan. We also have uh, Shelly Mazzanoble here with us. Hi, guys. Hi, Shelly. Hello. Hello. It's so good to talk to you. Yeah, and we got a pretty good connection, we too. We hear you loud and clear. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, nice. The things, the, the interwebs are working correctly Technology. today. Miraculous. Amazing. Are you guys calling from uh, Bushwick? Sure. We are <sighs> in our office, Dwarven Forge office. That's awesome. I saw it in the, uh, the sneak peek of the documentary you guys yep. gave me. That uh, I kind of want to just live in that office. Is that possible? Well, that office, it's no longer possible to live there because uh, they've since moved. Oh. <laughs> We're, Can I go across the street from my house and across the street from Roberta's Pizza? Nice. Mm, that sounds delicious. In, uh, There's everywhere. <laughs> so, uh, just fair warning: I uh, spent about ten years in uh, in Williamsburg, uh, most recently on on Bedford Ave. Uh, I moved out of there in two thousand nine. So, uh, it is nice to hear an old Brooklynite uh, uh, talking about all this fun stuff. Wow, yeah. man. Yeah. Have you been back since? I actually was just back there about uh, two weeks ago. Uh, just I had an hour to kill before our flight and uh, drove around the old neighborhood. And I was like, oh, man, Has is it this changed? totally different. Did it change a lot? So, I guess. Yeah. It would. Seven if, years. If you're, if you're ever in the neighborhood again, you should stop by Zaltara's Gallery of Fantastical Arts. Yeah, I'd love to. That sounds awesome. Sounds like a reason to go back. So yeah. is, that, is that what you're calling your office now? Uh, no, that's above the office. I have two spaces here. Cool. Tell us about them. Huh? Uh, well, uh, Saltar's gallery is uh, showing my work right now, which is, you know, maps that we've done. Uh, like I drew a map for Luke Gygax and Tim Cass. They're, nice. they're two of their worlds are there. And then one, one of my worlds is up there, Mithras. And... Uh, my idea was always to have this as a kind of a showcase for the art of Dungeons and Dragons mm. kind of stuff. So uh, if I can get my ass in gear, uh, I might have some, you know, shows there, you know, call for entries. Oh, uh, I always cool. wanted to do like a, a show of people's dungeon maps or a show of people's painted miniatures, that kind of thing. Oh, that'd be cool. Well, we can steal some stuff from Chris Perkins' desk. Yeah. <laughs> that would yeah. be awesome. Yeah, yeah. I just haven't got my 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 uh, my ass in gear yet before this other stuff that's been happening. You know? Well, you've been a little bit busy. Uh, yes, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, Josh, you've been uh, documenting uh, uh, all of this busyness for for some time. How long were you uh, collecting footage uh, for the documentary? So we started shooting the Dorvanot uh, in November of 2014, and we premiered the movie at South by Southwest of 2016, which was literally in March. Yeah. So it came together, this film came together quite quickly. Well, that um, does seem fast. Like from beginning to end, uh, I think it, the whole process was probably about a year and a half. And then, you know, um, which, you know, compared to my first movie, my first movie took me 11 years to make. So, 
little bit of a difference there. I'm glad this didn't take 11 years. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'd be dead. So how did you two team up to do this? Um, so um, my first film, uh, Made in Japan, was edited. Uh, I had two editors, uh, a lovely, uh, talented Julie Bob Lombardi and uh, Victoria Leshu, who is an incredible editor. And um, Victoria is Nate Taylor, our producer's best friend, and they'd made a movie together before. Um, and uh, Nate is the creative director here at Dwarven Forge. Um, ah. and he makes, you can see him in the film as well. He's the guy with the mohawk who's, he makes all of Stefan's uh, Kickstarter videos and, um, you know, does a lot of other things for the company. And at first the idea was um, to make like a sizzle reel or, a, a, you know, try and make a pilot for a documentary, excuse me, for a reality show. Um, and they asked me if I would be interested in that. And um, I, I was like, well, I don't know. I need to meet him. And, uh, I came in and, and uh, we were we started shooting immediately, um, and I could tell that he was this was something that I wanted to pursue. Um, and then, you know, within a couple of weeks, we really figured out that I, I really started to notice it was like this 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 needs to be a feature length documentary. This is <laughs> much better than a reality show. Um, I didn't want to do something that would cheapen Stefan or his work. Um, and uh, I think we, you know, hopefully we did a good job at. Um, doing just that. Well, what do you so. think, Stefan? Do you feel cheapened now? <laughs> uh, no, the opposite. <laughs> didn't, wouldn't cheapen as well. I know, so I know. A reality show would, would not have done justice to what he actually does. For sure. He, he, uh, he wanted to do something a little more serious than just uh, capturing the anarchy of the office, which there was a lot of anarchy. Uh, there's a lot of you know craziness going on. It's just fun to capture. But then when I when I saw the uh, the the work that he did like well, like eight months later I was uh, stunned to see that it was really sort of centering on my life. <laughs> I had an inkling that he was sort of digging this up because uh, he kept asking me questions about it, and he asked for my photo albums, my family photos, and all kinds of stuff. And uh, but I didn't know the real extent of it until I saw the. The, some of the early screenings, and uh, I uh, I get emotional. It's a very emotional film for me to watch. That I'm makes sure. sense. Yeah. Yeah. Just so you didn't know it was going to be uh, as biographical, uh, so that uh, that must be really. It's almost like a this is your life kind of feeling. Yeah. Like by the way, here's this movie, and it's yeah, all so, about you. I mean, halfway through, I kind of figured, you know, yeah. he's shooting me all the time, and even <laughs> uh, you know, we went to Italy together to see my mother's uh, uh, resting spot and so I, I knew there was there were going to be personal parts in it um, but I, I didn't really realize the extent you know to the end and I, I think I I think he put together really a work of art you know and, and I love the fact that the music that he played all the music he or how do you call it composed yeah, all the I scored the whole film. Which, he composed uh, it, he, he played it, and I think it brings a lot of emotion to the film, which I really like. And, I mean, me and Josh hit it off right away, uh, our love for heavy metal and Black Sabbath and stuff like that. Nice. Yeah, that's funny, because when I was watching it, I uh, picked up on the music right away, actually. I, I, awesome. Yeah, I really, I loved it. I thought it definitely gave me, a from the very first minute, the a vibe that's of what the fantastic. film was going to be like. That's great. That makes um, 
I that keep, makes me feel really good. I keep telling you should come out with an album. Yeah, right. Yeah, the we need the original soundtrack. soundtrack. <laughs> I mean, if you want to talk about the music for a second, I, I will. Let's sure, talk sure. About yeah, because I actually I noticed when reading the credits, I was like, oh, that's the same guy who directed it. I did all the score, and that's not something you see very often in filmmaking. The 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 person who's composing is not often the auteur of the film itself. Yeah. Well, let me just say this. Um, first of all, the film. Uh, you, what you see really is the amalgamation of a lot of people's incredible talents. So we had our, 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 our DP, Mike, our, our director of photography, who was, I mean, personally, I think he shot it beautifully. Um, our editor, Victoria Leshu, did an amazing job editing the thing. Um, I think my biggest directional tool, besides uh, being next to the camera, but my biggest directional tool for our editor was, our, was the music. Mm. And, you know, when I was a kid, uh, like Stefan, I have a similar background to Stefan's. I'm not going to go into it completely, but um, I had some really tumultuous times. So I would, I just, and music helped me through those times. I played from the time I was 11. And I always, can, I always thought that I'd end up in a metal band or end up in some <laughs> kind of rock and roll band. And then something happened um, when I was like 16. I saw Jim Jarmusch's Down by Law. And it just dawned on me. I was like, "Wow, that dude's doing rock and roll with movies. Mm. Like, it's, it's, he's, 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 it's, you know, it's this is the, the movie felt. I'd never seen anything like that before. I was like, "Wow, this feels like it's like he's a musician, except he's a director. Like, he, like he's making, he's doing rock and roll, but it's right. it's movies. It's not, it's not music. And that just something clicked, something snapped in me, and I changed. Um, I, I all of a sudden I decided I was going to be a filmmaker, but I never stopped playing music. I played." just nonstop every day from the time I was 11. Um, so I feel incredibly uh, fortunate that I was actually able to use that tool visually, mm -hmm. you know? And, 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 and um, I think that it really helped shape the film. And I know that when, when uh, Vicky, our editor, finally started to get the music, when I started to funnel stuff towards her, she, she started to, to, to understand what, the feelings that I was that I was going after, and that's I think really what kind of um, made the film feel like it does. And so uh, I'm very very fortunate that I was given the opportunity and the chance to to take both of my art forms and put them together. You know, and, and we're very fortunate. You know, I, I was very ex happy when I was. He was sending me some of these things uh, on his what iPhone. He was sending me little clips. Yeah. You know, and uh, I was like, wow. I didn't know you were like such a great musician. <laughs> well, about about three quarters of the way through the movie, I think you really start to notice some of these opening riffs that really sort of are emotionally, to me anyway. You know, I start hearing these like emotion. It really starts to notice the music as a uh, a presence, a presence there. You know? Yeah, uh, yeah. It says a lot that it's that it. I mean, oftentimes it's just in the background. It's not, it's, it doesn't stand out so much, but it definitely stood out to me in this. So, good job. Nice. Thank you. Yeah. Don't, don't mean to sound too, uh, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but I'm really no. proud. I'm proud of that fact that I was able well, to. Well, yeah, to, you should be. And by the way, I'm not the first filmmaker. John Carpenter scores all of his movies. You know, there's other filmmakers. That it's true, it. true. It's just, it's, it's, it's uh, not very common. What I'd like to add is that, um, so, John, are you familiar with the Psychedelic Furs, the band The Psychedelic Furs? No. Yeah. Oh, you are? Yeah. Oh, so, John Ashton um, is a not friend hip. of mine. Not hip. 
God. Over here. You Sorry know. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I thought we were interrupting you. Go ahead. So John Ashton is the guitar player from the Psychedelic First, and he's a friend of mine who I've known for quite a while. And um, we talked about, you know, he, he let me know. He said, if there's anything that I can ever do musically, if there's any, ever a way to collaborate, let me know. So when I was looking, you know, we were looking for um, a sound engineer, uh, John, all of a sudden I just, I just got this idea, like, I should talk to John. And um, John ended up producing the whole, all of the, the whole soundtrack. So, oh, wow. Wow. And he got Sarah Lee from Gang of Four to play bass, and he got Jerry Murata, who is uh, Peter Gabriel's percussionist and drummer. And um, we went into a studio up in Woodstock, and um, it was my first real recording experience in that capacity. And um, it what ended up happening is some of my early stuff that I recorded on my literally on my iPhone. Um, was more haunting and had more of the vibe that we, we just couldn't re replicate that vibe. We, mm. I could, we couldn't do it again. So in the film, what you really hear is, is you hear it, anything that's solo, any kind of solo guitar, it's literally me on my iPhone at home. <laughs> oh, wow. And all of the stuff with a full band is with absolute world-class musicians. And I got to say, I, I just felt so lucky that my first recording experience was, was with people of that caliber and, uh, that's also why I feel so personal. I mean, a lot of music is just like, you know, un un unplugged. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, the reason why we couldn't replicate those, um, some of this, we could, I couldn't get the same feeling with a band was because literally, like, it, I just couldn't get it to, it just, it just didn't come out the same, you know? It didn't, yeah. it didn't feel the same. So, so what we did is, is you got a happy medium. You got a... You know, and that also speaks to that technology thing that we were talking about. Um, you know, nowadays you can literally record on your iPhone, and you, you know, you throw a few throw a few filters on it, and it's you know, film quality. Yeah, yeah. that's amazing. Wow, so, what a cool story! And and it's cool that you were able to record with those guys. I mean, just Peter Gabriel's was, percussionist, like that's nuts. It was an incredibly daunting experience at first. It's <laughs> because I I you know recorded with friends and stuff before, but I'd never recorded in a professional studio. Um, they're playing my music. I wrote all wow, of those that's songs. So weird. Uh, and I and and uh, you know I was a huge Gang of Four fan growing up, and I knew all about Sarah Lee, and I knew all about John Ashton as a kid. You know, a girl gave me a a, a a psychedelic furs tape when I was you know fourteen at high school, and then um, all of a sudden being able to play with these people, you know, with these people, and it was a little daunting at first because like I don't want to tell anyone how to do anything. Right. It's like you playing with uh, Luke. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like you playing with Luke Gygax. Oh, yeah. It's like playing D&D <laughs> playing &D with the guys here, too. You're like, oh, I think I even, I, there was I had one experience where I was uh, uh, playing uh, a board game with a guy, uh, and I was like, are you sure this is how this rule works? <laughs> and he just turned to me and said, yes. And then I realized later that he was the guy who had developed the rules for that board game. <laughs> and I was questioning on whether or not the rules were correct, and he was interpreting them right. Wow. So it's got to have that feeling. Yeah. So uh, anyway, that's uh, I just felt. Uh, oh, that's a that's a great story. Important to to, to let you guys that's know awesome. that that, awesome. that was a uh, um, yeah. that was major for me. 
I, I, I tried to reach out to Ozzy, but <laughs> he didn't return any of my calls. Uh, you know. He really should have. I don't know. He's not doing too much right now. You think he'd have some time? I think time. you have to reach out to Sharon, actually. That's if you probably true. To Ozzy. Yeah. There's my yeah. mistake. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Always go through the wife. But you didn't want to go. Yeah. Right. So then, uh, then he can get him to play Dungeons and Dragons with him, which I think is would be the ultimate goal of of yeah, having him score. Time he wants, I will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He would probably love one of your campaigns for sure. Uh, anytime. So uh, your love of Dungeons and Dragons comes through uh, very clearly in the in the in the film. Uh, so Stefan, would you love to give like a little like what was what was it like your first time playing Dungeons and Dragons? How did you get hooked and and, and how did you come to uh, uh, feel that it was uh, such an important game? Oh man, I, I was hooked from the very first moment I played. You know, I mean it was. Uh, just such an amazing thing. I didn't really understand it to begin with, you know, and uh, I was a little goofy. <laughs> but I, I just had so much fun. I was like 12 years old. I was at summer camp. We had this archery council, council, archery, archery counselor named Doug, who I've never, I don't know where he is in the world right now. He has probably has no idea what he's done to me. <laughs> We tried to find him actually. We, we were on, we were not. I was not successful in locating Doug. Cat oh, Mackinac, uh, back in what the eighties or something, and uh, Doug uh, was an archery counselor, and and so he would show up at our cabin uh, dressed in character. Oh you know, no way! Have, like, have a cloak, and they'd have this uh, a walking stick, and this kind of funny looking. Cap and, and so he was the complete, uh, and he was part of this thing called the Judges Guild. Mm. And, uh, and he just, <laughs> I remember we would roll, take out these funny looking dice and we what the hell is this, you know? And we'd make these characters on, on little index cards and we would play for a couple hours and end up dying horribly <laughs> each time. And it was a really kind of killer DM, he had no mercy. I mean, I remember we had first level characters, and and he would just bring on these vampires, and he would all kill us, and but we would still love it. Yeah. And you know, eventually, I remember, I remember the last time I played at summer camp, I finally made it to second level, oh. and I'm like overjoyed, you know. And uh, then camp was over. But <laughs> I got back to New York, and I immediately bought the books, and then I started in the long process of becoming a dungeon master and creating my own world. And it's been a, a lifelong love ever since. Nice. So what what year about was that? Was that? Man, I, I don't know. I'm bad with numbers. So you're, you're 49 and he was 12 when he discovered the game. So it was like, you know, late 70s, early 80s. Oh, wow. Okay. So ahead of the curve is what I was, I was trying to get at because it seems like uh, uh, this guy, if he was a big member of the Judges Guild, that was definitely more active in the in the 70s. Uh, uh, and I think that's just kind of cool that you got in, like basically like a, a, not a beta tester, but someone who was like an early adopter yeah. to Dungeons and Dragons, and then spread it out to, you know, all the camps around the area. What's I just think cool that's so cool. Is like if this Doug guy s still plays D and D, <laughs> he very likely knows your work. Like he's probably he could have he could have been playing with with Dwarven Fords. He probably you know he probably doesn't play anymore. You know, he probably he like, or something. Who knows? You know that's how life is. But. It would be amazing to meet him one day, you know. 
Yes. And show him this film. Like, look what you did to me. Yeah. Man. <laughs> look what you did to me. Maybe he'll be like lying, you know, lying in his bed one day, like flipping through the TV channels and be like, oh, what's this? The Dormanaut. And like, oh my God. That guy and looks familiar. Tim Mackinac is mentioned in the movie and everything. And, and I think it's shown some clips there. And, and it's amazing. Uh, but That's the interesting awesome. thing, as I was say, is that uh, I was, what you say, an early adapter. Yeah. I was in New York City and everyone that was like involved in all in the beginning is like in Milwaukee and, and the mid the heart. Madison, right. And uh, they were going to the early Gen Cons and they were all going to each other's houses where I was a total outsider just buying these books at the complete strategist in New York and then, you know, without playing modules or anything, just making up my own stuff. So I kinda was like in my own little cave mm-hmm. for all these years until ninety six. The first year I went to Gen Con, and that's when I started to meet all these old school people. And now I, I, I pinch myself that I, I know these guys, and I go out and I drink with them, and I we hang out, and they're like my friends. Like Luke Gygax is one of my drinking buddies, <laughs> and, I, and I, he actually asked me to draw his his campaign world. And Tim Cask, I drew his campaign world, and, and these things just kind of blow my mind. They blow my mind. Sometimes I don't really. I'm like, wow. Tell I'm blessed. Tell them the the Melf story. Yeah, I played uh, with <laughs> Luke. Guy, I said, you know, there there's there's spells, right? Like Melf's minute meteors that are in the books. Yeah. Those are spells that Melf made. And Melf is Luke Gygax's character. That's awesome. And then awesome. I played a game with Melf. That kind of blew my mind. That is crazy. That's like touching like history there. You're right. Like 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 like. Wait a minute! You're actually playing that. That's your character. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're like there, and you're like, oh, afraid to roll the dice. <laughs> that's that's awesome. Josh, yeah. do you play too, or have you played? Um, no, uh, I have played with Stefan, and I also have to say that when I was a kid, um, just when I was getting to the age where I was discovering Dungeons and Dragons, and it was something that I wanted to be involved with, I ended up moving to Europe. Um, when I was 12, we moved to Holland. And right at the time that I was actually, I, I had played a couple times with some friends, like on the lunch break at school. Mm-hmm. Um, and my my older foster brother um, was was getting into it, and he was also getting into Call of Cthulhu, and he was the getting boy's into an older brother, and he was getting into like, <laughs> I remember him playing Call of Cthulhu, Dungeons and Dragons, and it, like, it, I was interested in it, and it was something that was definitely I wanted to be a part of. But then all of a sudden, I I moved away. And I had the red box. I had, you know, the starter set, but I didn't have anyone to play with. And I didn't speak Dutch yet. I didn't speak another language. I didn't I didn't know anyone who, I just didn't know anyone. So it just kind of didn't happen for me. And then, um, you know, it dawned on me while we were shooting, when I was first getting to know Stefan, and I actually sat down and had a, and, and played a game with him. It was like, man, I'm getting to play uh, Dungeons & Dragons with one of the leading uh DMs in the industry right now. This is this is actually really great. I wish that I would have known you when I was, you know, twelve years old, <laughs> thirteen years old. Maybe but imagine how your life would have been different if yeah. you had stayed and kept playing. Yeah, that would have been insane. But uh, uh, but that being said, uh, I you know we're the film's now finally out, uh, finished and it'll be out soon and um, you know so I won't be as in, in in Stefan's life as much as I have been in the past year and a half but him and I have become really great friends and I envision myself uh, 
playing games sometimes, you know, coming by and, and, and playing a game. We can still hang out. Yeah. Nice. So <laughs> if you get uh, if you get Doug and Ozzy and Josh all in the same group, I think you're you're well on your on your way. To your next film, probably. <laughs> to your next film, right. That's that's the next <laughs> gonna, film. Yeah. Don't put that camera away. It might be a little too reality TV for, for, for Josh though. That's I'm waiting for Sharon to make the call, you know. <laughs> Sharon, we know you're listening. We know so. you listen you're you're a big well, subscriber. <laughs> Like she might not be the. No, they're back together. They're back together. Oh, oh they are. Yeah. They are. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, I didn't hear that. It was a publicity stunt. <laughs> Amazing. Are they doing some, some European travel show or something like that? Walking around. Ozzy's got a new show. He's walking around Europe. Oh, okay. We just got to get them. Walking around we'll here. just send them some dice and some uh, some Dwarven Forge stuff. So um, the so when, when you mentioned going to Gen Con uh, around '96. Is that when you started to get the idea to uh, to create the terrain? Oh no! It was the reason I went to Gen Con was to have a booth, a little ten by ten booth, and to sell my first dungeon. Oh, okay. Okay, let's talk about this because I mean, yeah. your stuff is incredible. Like, where Greg and I were just talking about how we can't believe like there's actually like a human being behind it. Like it's not just like a field <laughs> oh, yeah? of hamsters. Because we thought it was, it thought it'd be a dwarf. Yeah, I, I thought sense. it would be a dwarf. I'm, I'm not gonna say I'm yeah. not disappointed. The dwarven odds. The dwarven odds. Exactly. There's got to be something magical happening there. But so how did this come about? Uh, well, I, I didn't know. I didn't know I was going to do it. Uh, I I started. I I was really sort of a a hell-raising uh, guy, li- little kid without really a uh, a sale, you know, a kind of like a, a rebel without a cause. Mm-hmm. And uh, growing up in the city in the 80s, and uh, I was, you know, getting into fights, and I was getting kicked out of class every day, and I was, you know, not really going anywhere, <laughs> you know? And um, uh, at one point, you know, I got kicked out of school, and then, I didn't know what to do. My mother was like, you know, you are going to school, young man. You know, you're not getting out of this. And, and I was like, ah, I hate school. You know, everyone else is making money. And so she's like, well, there happens to be a school up the block where they do art. I was like, what do you mean? They, yeah, they do art there. You're great at drawing. You love to draw. We're going to enroll you in that school. And we're going to start giving you an allowance. I was like, oh, an allowance. <laughs> <laughs> you know? They're going to pay me to go to school. So they're going to yeah. pay me to go to school. Uh, yeah, like I was only like twenty dollars a week or something, you know, which was big. Good That's big um, for the eighties. That is big. Yeah. <laughs> inflation. Man. So uh, I was in, you know, and then I got there, and I had no idea what it was going to do to me. I, I met this guy, Erwin Greenberg. You know, he's a, a Vietnam veteran, and uh, he had lost one eye in the war, and uh, he had been blind for a little bit because of this mine that had blown up and you know, killed the guys in front of him. And, and he was a very inspirational guy. And he was, you know, he was very severe and stern. He scared the crap out of me on the first day. And, uh, <laughs> he was your painting teacher. He was right? my painting teacher. Oh, I thought he was his fellow student. <laughs> no, Mr. Greenberg, you know, Greenie, he was the, you know, uh, he's a guy that would go to the school at six in the morning, three hours before school opened every day and hold a painting class for any students that wanted to go at six in the morning and we would have painting every day. We would get a model to go up there and we'd paint for three hours. And at the end, we'd put whatever change we had into a little coffee cup to pay the model. And they called it the early morning class. Wow. And so, lo and behold, I went from this rebel to some guy that now is getting up at six in the morning to go to school. <laughs> 
So that's how I cut my teeth on painting uh, for, for a few years there. And I, I thought, man, this is what I, I love painting. And I still do. And I thought that was my calling in life. And um, so it wasn't until later on when I, I D&D was my hobby, painting was my, you know, passion. And then I saw, then I discovered sculpture and this is all in the movie. It's all in the movie. And yeah. I discovered sculpture at, in college. And, uh, and then the, everything, a light bulb went off. I was like, wait a minute, why don't I sculpt dungeons? You know, because I was very dissatisfied with what we had. Mm -hmm. There was like graph paper or, you know, dry erase board. You would you would paint these beautiful figures and put them on this, these boards. And I, but there was nothing really three-dimensional and beautiful like that. So I was like, well, I'm going to have to create it. So that's what we did. We created prototypes and got the little booth and sold out in four hours. And that was the beginning. That's awesome. That is a great uh, generation story, and I know it is. In the, it's totally you cover all this in the in the film, but it's nice to kind of hear mm -hmm. uh, uh, from you as as far as, as so. Did you feel that when you're making the the sculptures available for people that that it improved? Like, do you ever get the sense or get feedback from folks about how much it has improved uh, just their play around the table? I, I, I get glowing, glowing, loving letters from people that are just like thank you so much and, and i love what you're doing blah 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 and i might play with my kids thank you for uh, it, this is what keeps me going i love the, the interaction with the you know um the other creative people you know you get to do something creative then they get it and then they become creative with it and then they are creative with their friends and that's what i love about it. it's like it keeps giving whereas a painting just goes on a wall you know, and usually it's some rich uh, person that doesn't really care, you know, and they just buying it for some status reason, mm -hmm. you know, but not the gamers. They're buying this stuff. They're, they're hoarding every penny to buy it, and then they're utilizing it, and they love it, and, and that's so much more fulfilling for me than painting. I still like to paint, but I don't get that the same sort of fulfillment as this interaction with the customers. Let me add something to that. Mm -hmm. um, one of the one of the reasons why I thought that Stefan was such an um, an incredible character is, is to me, from the outside, a non gamer, see, it dawned on me he's literally taken Dungeons and Dragons and he's made it into a artistic tool, like a paintbrush. Mm. He's like he's like turn, he's taken it and made it into his artistic vehicle, his medium, everything about him, from being an incredible DM to sculpting Dwarven Forge stuff, it's all, it's all because of his love of Dungeons and Dragons and he's literally turned it into an art form. Yeah. So that, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's he's not a, um, it's one step above and beyond. Well, and when I, I always like playing with, uh, with visual artists too around the table because they do something that I, I just don't have uh, the ability to, which is take stuff that happens within the game, which usually happens, you know, in the kind of your mind uh, uh, and with the shared minds of the other people around you. Um, and, and, and you mentioned, Stefan, like most of the time it's through graph paper or, or you know, simple miniatures on the table. Um, but artists, and, and Stefan, you're one of the ones who are doing this, takes the, what is in that imagination and makes it real, makes it tangible, makes it able for other people uh, to see and experience and then have the same frame of reference for, for the imagination of the action that, that, that happens. And I, I, I really appreciate that. 
because the, you know when it, the first time I saw Jorvan Forge uh, stuff at Gen Con, you know, back in the the two thousands, it was like my imagination was made real. Cool. And uh, I thank you for that. That's that's yeah. just super cool. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And you know, I think it's a, it's a Dungeons Dragons a game that forces you to be creative. Mm -hmm. That's what I like about. It. I mean, from the very beginning, they're like, you know, Gary's telling you, you know, draw your own maps, make your own world, you know, just the rules if you want, all that kind of stuff. And that's, it continues to this day, you know, and, uh, it, and then your character sheet was like, there's a box where you're supposed to draw your own character. Yeah. You know, everyone has to draw their own character, you know, and this is a wonderful thing. I always see, even if you have no drawing skill whatsoever, Everybody eventually just tries to draw their character. Mine were usually stick yeah. figures. Mine were, I was like, <laughs> find a picture on the internet. Figure, <laughs> it really makes you become attached to that character you've created. Yeah. yeah. Even but just naming fun. your character. Like naming that. character. Yeah, it's, just, it's so much fun. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I love it that there's a whole new generation of younger people that are now discovering this. You know, they're discovering. Yeah, so what do you think about the, uh, I mean, I'm you, having been playing for 30, 40 years, what do you think about, as you say, the new generation of people playing uh, almost like performance-wise on Twitch or uh, through YouTube, that kind of new new way of sharing experiences with people? Do, do you mean like what Google Hangouts or something? Like that? Well, that, but then also, uh, I don't know if you're aware of uh, like shows like Critical Role or Acquisitions Incorporated, which uh, we've been doing here at PAX for the last few years. Of uh, of people playing in front of an audience, or uh, you know, being recorded yeah, and streamed it's a live. Entertainment. I've I've heard about this. I've heard uh, yes. I think this is something new that's coming up. You know, but I I where I like that. I really encourage people not to watch others do it, but they should just come and do it themselves. <laughs> Make the phone calls. Find get your friends together. Sit around the table like human beings, not through a video stream. Sit at the table, eat the potato chips, drink the Mountain Dew, and play. You know, don't be afraid. And then it, what it does is like it's a sociable game. It's a game that you know uh, uh, allows you to go meet people, act out uh, these characters, uh, get over your shyness, and roll <laughs> dice. And you know, it 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 helps us to remain human in a world that's becoming more and more. Uh, Robotic, you know, we're yeah. turning to drones here, and 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 now that the virtual reality is coming out, and all these things is happening, and like we must retain our humanity, and I feel like this is one one way for people, for us as humans, to retain our humanity. That feeling, like sitting around a campfire and telling stories, that kind of thing. But you know, absolutely. To counter that a little bit, though, I have, I've also, um, like, for instance, when we were in, we, we screened at uh, IFF Boston, uh, Independent Film Festival of Boston, and we mm -hmm. met some, some, um, some Dwarven Forge fans that we hung out with a little bit. And this guy was also a DM, and he's from France originally, and they run a, he runs D&D &D games through Skype. So I think also the, the, the technology, I mean, I can see it also helping people to remain social at times that they wouldn't be able to sit down. Yeah, there are, we you know I mean? we definitely hear stories of people who have you know their gaming groups have moved away from each other and they still stay in contact by by gaming as much as they can through through the use of technology. So you're right; it's not exactly the same as 
everybody being in the same room. I think everybody in an ideal world would love uh, to do that every every week or every day if they possibly could. Uh, but uh, technology is, is a tool. It's a tool to be used. Use yeah. technology. Don't let technology use you. Absolutely. And I think uh, We're using you know technology right now. We are. That's true. Yeah. And if only we could, you know, have flown to Brooklyn, then we could have had this face to face. Could have two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, I know. Two weeks ago. Um, but no, you mentioned, you know, just about that, that social interaction and how that is now uh, something that uh, humans need to kind of focus more on. And it's mm -hmm. such a, a change because I don't know if, I mean, you remember if you had the same feedback. It sounds like your parents were a little bit more supportive of your Dungeons and Dragons habits. Uh, but there used to be not so many parents who were into that. Uh, and now uh, it's, op it it's the opposite. I heard about this, but I was unaware of that even at the time. I didn't know that parents were against it. Oh, see, yeah. My, when you, maybe, you had a more uh, uh, crazy. metropolitan, you know, in the metropolitan area, I'm sure they're a little bit oh, yeah, more yeah. Uh, lenient about that kind of thing. But yeah, no. And then, but the funny thing is, is, you know, that's the opposite now is that parents are now encouraging their kids to get together uh, to play Dungeons and Dragons because of the social interaction. And it's not looking down at a phone and it's not. It's a game of, of cooperation. Yeah. You're referring to the satanic panic years, I think. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. People were literally, uh, parents were scared shitless that, that somehow Satanism had something to do with Dungeons and Dragons sorcery and, and, and right. all these crazy right. stories of people, you know, you know killing their parents and then it turns out that they've been Which none of which, those were more fantasy than the fantasy games that we were playing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but you know that's very hard to understand. I mean, it's the same thing with rock and roll and and, and heavy metal. I'm sure as you both yeah. being metal fans, you at least heard of that. How, you know, uh, Ozzy Osbourne was gonna you know turn us all into devil worshippers at one oh, point. Oh yeah, and 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 if you play Stairway to Heaven backwards, it tells you to you know those, yeah. it says you know talks about Satan. Or whatever. Well, that's true though. I did, <laughs> I did play that backwards once, and it, now I, I love Satan. My experience is different because growing up in New York in, in the 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s, if you were, parents are overjoyed. If you stay at home with your friends, sit around the table and play. <laughs> exactly. You're not outside with the drug pushers and all that and the violence. I guess that makes sense. Not, you're not doing graffiti on the subway cars yeah, if you're. Really, oh, thank God, he's playing Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> it's so good. With real people. With yeah. real people. Talking to real friends. Um, I, I really, th I think that that was really, is that was the, so that was something that was happening at that time, you know? Yeah, that, yeah. And it, cool. it's exciting to see, you're right, as it, 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 it fosters now, it fosters communication, it, it, uh, cooperation <laughs> amongst people. Evil. Remember skateboards had like skulls and shit on them back then? And yeah. Like, yeah. Like, things, it, everything was evil for some reason was like oh. in back then. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't even like talking about it. I think we, we the time has come that we should not even bring it up anymore. I mean, to me, it's so, so silly and in the past. Yeah, it's know? almost like a history document now at this I, point yeah. to be like, remember it's that? past to keep bringing it up. You know? Yeah. None of us turned into like, you know, uh, axe murderers. Well, Greg's not. Yeah, well, Greg's except not for me. totally right. And, uh, <laughs> it might not be because of the D and D. Yeah. Uh, could be for something else. Like yeah. too much math. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I was forced to do so much math homework. Now yeah. all of my math consists math of trying to bad. add, uh, you know, seven to a twenty-sided die roll. Multiplication did it to me. Algebra <laughs> is that algebra pushed me over the edge. Well, that really did. So part of the uh, you know the documentary is about the Kickstarter, the third Kickstarter that you guys did, uh, uh, and the the you know the amazing success of that. So that's a it's a great kind of 
storyline throughout the whole documentary. But uh, I, you know, what's what's next for Dwarven Forge? What do you guys have anything on the horizon? We've already spent the money. Yeah. <laughs> People think we make an enormous amount of money, but it actually takes that much money to get it done and to pay everybody, and uh, then we're broke again, and then we have to run another Kickstarter. So the Kickstarters are keeping us alive. You know, they're keeping the company in business. Um, you know, it's you know, we have a reputation for selling things that are, you know, you know, on on the high end. Yeah. You know, because they're very high quality. It takes a lot of money to make them. And uh, do you guys? So this is, I mean, I'm sure you, uh, a part of this is covered in the documentary, but just for my own uh, curiosity, do you, you have the sculptors who create the individual pieces, uh, but then they create the molds, and then you're able to to mass produce that from from those molds. Yeah, you know, we we make stuff in China, you know, like everyone mm -hmm. else. But in the documentary, we what we first have to do is make the prototypes right. at the at the studio, and then what also happens is we if we go to convince people to buy it, we have to make enough pieces so we can shoot it, so people can see the potential of if they back us, this is what we can potentially make. So we have to we literally made like hundreds of houses, and we had to hand paint them, hand sand them, all this, and, uh, you know, we're, we're testing them out, we're making, they're, they're all a little bit wonky, and uh, <laughs> we get up the money to be able to spend money on these steel molds, which are like, some of them are like $10,000, and, and you have to lift them up with a crane, this factory, and, what? and uh, you, you literally, we probably, on our last Kickstarter, we probably, this castle, so we did in March, our last castle Kickstarter, mm -hmm. Probably going to spend a million dollars on molds. Just on mold itself. Just well, on the mold. Let me let me jump in for one second. I think it's important to 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 to, uh, to specify that they do hand carve, design, make all the prototypes, hand sculpt all of the pieces. But once they've been, they go to China for for mass production. Yes. So, but they literally they are absolutely hand sculpted by Dwarven Forge. But uh, in order to, to, to be able to produce enough products to get to the fans and to the buyers, they have to go through China. Oh, yeah. I mean, we could. Yeah, we, there's could. some pieces we literally have to have a one million of that one piece. Yeah. It would literally take us 100 years. <laughs> if we to hand sculpt each one of those. Yeah. Every one, right? I mean, we make the prototypes. Um, we're not like making them big and shrinking them down or, or anything like that. We have to, we, we have like little tools that are like exacto uh, uh, knives. Mm -hmm. After hand sculpt there. And then I take little, one of my tricks of the trade here is I take actual rocks and I press the rocks against the, uh, the soft putty to get the texture of the rocks, that kind of thing. Oh, so, yeah. wow. That is a trick of the trade. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. The China thing is also it's something that we but didn't. Even even in China, you know, they hand paint every single piece. You know, it's not some machine doing it. That's amazing. I didn't we know that. Really? We didn't cover China in the film simply because it um, it was too big of a story arc to deviate into. Yeah, yeah. it just it felt like minutia for us. There for for a while that we we were trying to you know it took us a minute to figure out exactly what should go in and what shouldn't and uh, it's something that we we kind of. 
Sure, we, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm only asking more as a, a as, you know, the interest of mine because I was doing, I used to, di I did some uh, uh, RPG book printing and stuff and, and know that the quantities of scale can sometimes go a little bit uh, crazy. So yeah, I'm just kind of curious as to how that whole, the whole thing worked. We're shipping 40 foot containers like all over you know, New Zealand, uh, you know, uh, Germany, uh, England, you know, 40 foot containers. Huge. I mean, it's kind of a big operation, even though there's only like one or two of us here in the office on any given day, you know? Yeah. It used to be just me, you know, working out of my parents' house and then out of my art studio. And uh, then with the Kickstarter, it just kind of escalated. Yeah. You know, that's what's. That's what's cool about uh, Kickstarter was that you were able to get it to so many folks all over the country or all over the world. At the end of the day, I'm just a dude, you know. <laughs> sometimes it's overwhelming. You know, sometimes you want to just walk away, but you, you know that you can't because so many people are now relying on you. And um, you feel like you're doing something that means something. So, uh, you know, when, when it's very stressful and, and uh, when you haven't, slept very much and, and the weight is pushing down on you it's uh the feedback from the fans and the customers that, that keep you going and they participate a lot in it too you know every when we're doing the kickstarter i'm looking on the comments section there's hundreds of comments every day and i'm reading them all i think it last been like 40,000 40, comments and i read them all and then sometimes i comment back and then i listen to what's going on and sometimes we change what we do based on the feedback of what our you know our collectors say. Yeah. Um, so it's like I, what I said to these other guys. I said it's almost like a D and D game in itself. <laughs> start where you start with your idea of what you're going to do, but then maybe the players, the backers, they veer it off in another direction, and they say, "I wish you guys would do some of this." And if enough of those people say that, we start doing it. You know, it's an organic, living thing that changes during the during the uh, the thirty days and. Uh, yeah. Really, over in the year, we're constantly getting questions and getting feedback, and uh, like a like a good dungeon master, you got to listen to your your players or your collectors, you know. And that's why they they like it. They they know that they're actively involved in our company, and they know that their voices are heard. And um, that's what also makes it so rewarding. That's awesome. So cool. Well, thank yeah, you guys. That's, uh, that kind of thing, you know. Thank you for doing all that work, man. I mean, I know it's, uh, as you said, you were kind of hinting at how, how stressful it is with, yeah. uh, with running a business, a small business like this. But, uh, you People know. People think it's like a big corporation here. Yeah. Well known, but it's really just, you know, uh, I wake up in the morning and I, I come to the office, I have a stressful day, and I go hit the bar, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Got a drink for like four or five hours and then get to sculpting. Yeah, there you go. Sometimes the stress is overwhelming. But, you know, you got, life is like, you got to balance life. Life is balanced, you know. Just like you a good D&D &D game. Right. You know, I can't work 20 hours a day either, you know. You got to, it's all everything is uh, a balance, you know. Very true. So cool, man. I mean, I hope uh, uh, everybody got a, a little taste of what your work has been like. And Josh, uh, where can everybody find uh, the Dwarvenaut to watch? So the, well, uh, we're about to, in uh, North America, and, well, is it? Yeah, I think our North American our North American release uh, it'll be out on uh, VOD. So all you know, iTunes, Xbox, uh, all that stuff, August fifth. So um, oh, cool, uh, awesome. It's, yeah, it's right about it's corner. about to be available, and then we're still working on our world release. Um, but there'll be more, and uh, you know, you might 
might want to keep your eye out on uh, you know certain uh, streaming uh, portals. But we're not going to talk about those yet because we want people to buy the thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it has gotten some some really good uh, feedback from what I've I've seen. People yeah. are responding quite well to it. You know, we're really happy about that, and it just means that we did our job right. Um, yeah. And I'm. Um, um, I've been in interviews all day. I feel like. A, <laughs> what is Brad Pitt? <laughs> this has been I'm your. A little, I'm a little better looking than him, but you know. Well, definitely better dressed and have better hats. Um, I wonder if he played D and D. Gotta, gotta <laughs> ask him. Next, next time I'm uh, hanging out with Brad. Right. Yeah, next time you're with Brad, see if. Brad, let us know. Yeah, I'm available. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so he's added to the table with with uh, Ozzie. with Ozzy and the guy Doug from from Camp. Yeah. Excellent, cool. Well, thank you guys so much for taking the time uh, uh, to talk to us. I hope uh, uh, when the movie is available freely on August fifth, I guess it's going to be tomorrow. I think we're going to try and make this episode ready to go uh, for Thursday, August fourth. So uh, look for awesome. it. And let's say this: you know, pre-orders help. That's true. Pre-order the movie <laughs> on iTunes. The more, the more, the more pre-orders that we get, the more pre-orders that we get, the more heavily this document, this documentary will be featured on on, on, on iTunes, and, and the more eyes will get on it. So let's, if you want to help out, pre-order. Excellent. And I wanted to say that you know, as far as the edition wars go, you know, there's a lot of talk between what edition is the best edition. You know. Yeah. I mean, I personally like first edition, but any edition that, that turns you on to Dungeons and Dragons, that's the edition that's right for you. You know, that's I mean, true. whatever you guys like, that's what it should be. You know, and I'm a very, you know, I, yeah, that's what I believe. You I know? agree. I agree. I'm, I'm holding out for eighth edition. I can't wait for that. <laughs> Just keep coming out. It's gonna be all, <laughs> uh, everything has something to add to it, a different angle, a different thing, you know. And, uh, you know, a lot of time you don't even have to use miniatures. I mean, I shouldn't say that, but, you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, sometimes I use them, sometimes I don't. You know, whatever brings you to the table with your friends and playing, that's that's the greatness of it, you know. You're right, Get man. Get away from uh, uh, your dark room and, and come out into the into humanity and, and sit around a table, roll some dice and eat some potato chips, you know. I love chips. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I think you're right, man. I think that 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 gets at the heart of what D and D is about. It's just playing with your friends and uh, enjoying your times together and creating some fantastic worlds. Hanging out, telling stories. So you got it. All right, we're gonna we're gonna start hiring you to uh, to be our uh, our uh, you know go to person for for sound bites about Dungeons and Dragons. Anytime. Love it. All right. Thank you guys. It was really nice to uh, to have this conversation. Yeah, next time I'm in Brooklyn, I'll let you guys know. We'll hang out and play some dice. Thanks so much for having us. This was great, guys. All right. You guys the best. Take it all easy. Right. Bye. Later. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, all right. Well, that was awesome. I'm so glad I got to hear a little bit about uh, what's, what it's like inside the mind of, uh, of Stefan. That's amazing. Yeah. And yes, he, this, the movie is awesome. And you should watch it just to see the sets that they're playing on. Right. Yeah. Why he, haven't I thought about having like smoke and fog? Because I've seen like the Dwarven <laughs> Forge setups that they have, but oh, like actually incredible. seeing it in play with you know probably items and walls and and, and sculptures just, that like, they don't have for for general the, consumption. The suspension bridge. Oh, I mean, so it was cool. like it was so cool. I was like kept rewinding that. Yeah. Like, what? Well, you, you know what love I love about Dwarven Forge is like it combines my love of like looking at model train mm-hmm, setups exactly. and Dungeons and Dragons because yes. you get that that glee in in both those uh, scenarios. Yeah. And uh, it's it's. I'm, 
that that's incredible. Amazing. So I would buy it just to keep watching that. Yeah. So go check it out tomorrow, August 5th. It's on demand. So on demand dem it. Demand it. As they say. Or pre-order it. Or pre-order it. That seems to be That's true. something they would appreciate. Shelly, it's been great uh, uh, having you back on the podcast. Thanks. Uh, hanging out. Even great though I guess you were there. probably there for all the other episodes, but both of us were on vacation. It feels like a lifetime. It does. Yeah. How can people uh, uh, get in touch with um, us about uh, things on iTunes and how... Let's, let's, let's go to the, t the Twitters. Let's go at, to the Twitters. At Shelly Moo. Yes, you're Love at Love to Moo. hear from people. People have been giving us some really good suggestions lately. They really right? have. Yeah, and we're going to action on them yep. forthwith. Yep. Immediately. Yep. Thank uh, you. I'm at Greg Tito. If you have any questions about uh, uh, Wizards of the Coast, go. you can follow us at Wansi underscore D&D &D, uh, to find out uh, all about what's going on with the Dungeons and the Dragons. Again, Storm King's Thunder is coming out very soon. I uh, can't wait for that. And we'll be able to have more um, uh, information about what's going on with PAX uh, very soon in uh, next week's episode. So stay tuned for that. Okay. Thanks for talking, you guys. Bye-bye. Bye. See you later. Bye, Ryan. Bye.